So I'm here with Judy Wicks, and uh, she started the White Dog Cafe, which is a really fantastic success story, and um, I'm very excited to be here with you today. I'd like to ask you first of all about um, the concept of a local living economy and what that is, if you could explain that briefly. A local living economy uh, is one in which uh, both natural life is supported and community life. That's what we call a living economy. And uh, some of the basic principles are that in a local living economy, basic needs are produced locally or regionally, um, such as food, renewable energy, sustainable clothing, um, green, green building materials, um, and then what is excess uh, that the community doesn't need or things that are unique to the community, um, an art or a fashion, a um, cheese or wine or something um, can be exported. Uh, so it's not, it's not um, anti-globalization, it's about um, having basic needs at home and then uh, having global trade that's, fa that's fair trade uh, that supports local economies elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So uh, how does the white dog fit in? Could you tell us a little bit about um, what, what the initiative was and how it got started? Well, at the time I started the white dog, uh, uh, that was, uh, gee, like 20... Seven years ago, uh, and it was 1983. Uh, I, I had never heard of fair trade or sustainability or any of these uh, terms that we know today. I just wanted to have a, a restaurant that um, uh, provided a place for people to talk and eat, eat good uh, food. And I had been working in a French restaurant for many years, and I, I wanted to have an, Amer an American restaurant, uh, but not the old-style American, which was just meat and potatoes, <laughs> uh, but rather um, kind of new American cuisine, which was cuisine that was based on what was fresh and local from uh, local farms. So I, I started um, uh, buying from local farmers, and that was sort of the, the, the first step I took, and that taught me about the importance of local food security and how we have to build um, a food, local food system uh, based on sustainable and humane agriculture. Uh, as sort of a first step in building a local economy. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I started getting interested in uh, other aspects of a local economy, local arts and culture, and independent retail, the idea that um, businesses should be locally owned. That's another basic principle of the local living economy movement. And, you know, I, um, but, but most of what I learned, I learned through doing my business and began to understand more about fair trade and about a paying a living wage and, um, having sustainable practices such as recycling and composting. And th that all came from me, uh, from the white dog. The white dog was, in a sense, my teacher. Um, and then I got to the point where I wanted to start helping other restaurants and other businesses do what I had been accomplishing uh, by, by sharing my knowledge uh, with, with other people. Mm -hmm. And um, so then I started, uh, founded some nonprofit organizations that, that did that. Mm -hmm. So how... Um when you have an idea that you're uh, so convinced is the right thing and that works, how do you get people to listen and cooperate with you? Well, first of all, you have to model it. You can't just talk about it. So I, I did it. You know, I'd, I'd hear about renewable energy, so I'd sign up. Uh, I was the first business in my state of Pennsylvania to use 100% renewable energy. Um, I was the first one to start buying only humanely raised uh, meat and poultry and eggs. Um, the first restaurant to buy um, only sustainably caught seafood that's line caught instead of net caught and so on. So um, that's the number one step is to model. Um, practice what you preach, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and then secondly, 
um, to provide opportunities that are fun uh, for people to learn more about it. So I would ha have events at the White Dog, like uh, the Dance of the Ripe Tomato, for instance. <laughs> that sounds like fun, right? <laughs> and people would, would come, uh, you know, for great food and, and a, a great dance band. Uh, but at that party, they would meet our farmers. Uh, I would give a little introduction about why we buy from lo local farmers, why sustainable agriculture uh, is important, why buying humanely raised meat is important. Um, and introduce some of the, of the speaker of the, of the farmers and introduce my chef and so on. Um, but for most of the evening, people were just <clears throat> eat, eat, drink, and be merry, <clears throat> you know, having a good time. So I think that um, that that fun is a big component of it. Of uh, people want to follow people that they see as being happy, <laughs> and not following people that they see as being you know, sacrificing their happiness and being a martyr of some sort. Yeah. So, you know, I guess, you know, A, I proved that um, being having sustainable practices was profitable, that I did these things in my business, and I was a successful business person, and B, that when I did these things, it made me happy, yeah. and that others joined me, they're happy too. <laughs> cool. Um, so, uh, what, what would you say is the, the greatest success of your work so far? Are you able to identify one thing? Or one thing that you're most proud of? Well, I guess the thing that I'm most proud of um, was the moment when I realized that even though I had all these good practices within my company, the White Dog Cafe, even though I was buying from farmers and using only humanely raised meat and so on, that that was not enough. Uh, that um, in order to that there's no such thing as one sustainable business that we must be part of a sustainable system mm -hmm. and that we needed to cooperate in order to, to build that system so uh, I realized that I could not keep um, uh, this as my competitive advantage my market niche uh, you know to, to buy from farmers that I had to uh, share um, this proprietary information with my competitors in order to create a whole sustainable uh, food system for my region and so I think that was my, my proudest moment when I, when I went from a competitive business person, though a, a good business person in terms of having good practices, but I still was competitive in that I didn't want anyone else to have these practices. <laughs> I wanted to be the only one in town that bought humanely raised meat and sustainable fish and so on. But, uh, you know, but once I realized that um, I, I cared more about the environment and about the farm animals and about the health of our community and our society and so on than I did about making more money for myself, then I became a cooperative business person. Uh, and I feel that that's, that spirit of cooperation is what's really needed right now uh, in order to confront the challenges before us um, with climate change and, and peak oil. We have to make a lot of changes really fast to create a, an alternative green and fair economy. And in order to do that, we, we have to work in partnership and cooperation. So I feel like that's kind of the hallmark of, um, uh, of, of this new, um, I, I'd say a cooperative economy in a sense. And so I, I feel that that was maybe the most important thing I did when I, when I realized that. And, and, and again, practice, practice it, practice what I preached. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so could you give us an example of businesses in your area that are cooperating in a really interesting way? Uh, yes. Um, there's a skateboard company called um, Comet Skateboard, and they developed a, um, a glue for, the, for making the skateboard that was eco-friendly, uh, but very strong and uh, um, appropriate for making skateboards. And rather than keeping that as their competitive advantage and their market niche to say that they used eco-friendly glue, they gave the formula to their competitors so that all the skateboard companies would have eco-friendly skateboards. 
Um, and th so that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So um, you talked yesterday, or you said something that uh, really hit home for a lot of us about um, not uh, leaving your values at home when you go to work. Mm. And uh, we wanted to uh, find out a bit more about what concretely you mean by that, like which, um, which values you think people should really focus on emphasizing in their business. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think the best way to describe this is, is um, by this concept of the triple bottom line. Um, traditional business measures the success of a business simply by how much profit you make at the end of the year. Um, so when you make decisions as a business person, you make, the, you make your decisions on how much money is this decision going to make for me? What is the most profitable decision to make? When you bring your values to work, um, when you make a business decision, you don't just consider profit, but you consider the impact of your decision on other people, on animals, on nature, um, so that on your employees. Um, uh, so then when you measure your success, rather than measuring your success just by how much profit you made that year, you also take into consideration um, through a, a triple bottom line, what was the result of my company, what was my impact on the environment, and what was the impact of my company on people, um, my employees, my customers, my neighbors, and so on. Um, and sometimes people call it the triple, triple P, um, people, planet, and profit. Some people call it the triple E, <laughs> <laughs> equity, uh, environment, and economy. Um, so whatever you want to call it, the, mm -hmm. the concept is that um, you bring your values to work, you make business decisions based on your values, and you measure your success through, um, through seeing how your decisions have affected the things that you actually care about. Mm -hmm. So um, you also discussed the importance of location and having things, uh, having a, a real personal connection to the place where you're working. Uh, how do you think that fits into a, a society that's uh, becoming more and more globalized? Uh, with people traveling to, you know, Berlin <laughs> and starting businesses there when really they, maybe they don't have connections there. Right. Well, um, first of all, I think that that we're, we're not going to go more and more in that direction. Um, one reason for that is, is, is peak oil, that um, the cost of oil is going to continue to go up. So travel is going to become more and more expensive. So I don't think people are, are going to pick up and fly here and there as much as they, they did, that we're going to be um, uh, gradually and, and maybe suddenly, and <laughs> depending yeah. on what happens you know, with oil, um, uh, spending more time at home. Like, and, and that's kind of another basic principle of the local living economy movement, is that we pick our place in the world, the place where, that we want to make our home, where we want to um, work and live, raise our family, uh, and take responsibility for that place uh, for that natural environment, for that community and those people. Um, and, and, and again, it, it fits into the, uh, into the business decision making because when you know that your decisions are going to affect your own neighbors and your, and your own children and your children's friends and so on and your own customers and your own natural environment, the water you drink and the air you breathe, you are more likely uh, to make decisions in the, in, in, in the best interest of the common good because you live there. Where when people are doing businesses around the world, and this happens all the time, as we know, uh, corporations you know dump their waste in someone else's community. They exploit the the workers in someone else's community. They you know they exploit the natural environment in other people's community, and then they they sell their product in a totally different community uh, that benefits from this. 
while spoiling um, the local economies, spoiling the, the health of uh, people and of the, of the natural environment in other places because they don't live there. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I think also that there is a human longing for a sense of place, um, that we've been speeding around the world so much um, and traveling so much and doing business all over the place that we've lost a sense of community. And I think that people are longing for community now. Um, so I think that there's more of a tendency um, to, uh, to want to build community. Um, and I, you know, I, I see it, uh, and it doesn't mean that we, we're not gonna travel anymore. I think that the whole exchange of ideas, the exchange of cultures and so on, uh, is always going to be appealing to people. Um, but I don't think we're going to be jetting around like we used to. I think we're going to use technology, you know, Skype, um, you know, and, you know, the Internet, of course, and uh, to uh, communicate um, our ideas uh, and ourselves and so on. But I think that uh, in increasingly um, our identity is going to be connected to our place um, and that we, uh, which doesn't mean you can never move. <laughs> But I think we're going to slow down as a as a as a, a world society, a world com community, um, and, and be more connected to place than we have um, during you know the, this last uh, century. Mm -hmm. And finally, I uh, I think yeah, I wanted to ask you about um, keeping your business small. And mm -hmm. uh, I. Uh, I think you mentioned this yesterday about kind of the concept of depth versus breadth and right. having um, your your business focus uh, a lot on doing one thing right rather than uh, growing bigger and spreading yourself too thin. Uh, to what extent do you think it's possible for a small business to, to grow without losing its roots? When do you know that something's gone wrong? Well, you know, that, that uh, there's a lot of different opinions about that. Um, for instance, how many employees uh, can a business have? Um, how, how big can you grow in terms of the number of employees that you have before it gets unwieldy, uh, before you reach, the, you pass the point at which um, management can actually know people, you mm -hmm. know, as human beings? And I'd say, you know, personally, uh, somewhere around 100 people um, would be the very maximum. Uh, where a, the, the CEO of a company or the owner of the business uh, would feel that they were able to maintain um, authentic relationships. Uh, and I'd say 100 people is like really pressing the envelope there. Um, when you get beyond 100 people, it's, it's, it's very, uh, you know, I would say it's almost impossible uh, to keep up uh, a personal relationship where you actually know your employees and the employees feel that they know the owner um, or the managers or whatever. Uh, so, um, and, and to me, that, that was why I decided not to grow any larger, because I, I, I knew that the authenticity of the relationships that I had with my employees and my customers, my suppliers and so on, uh, was what made the, the business meaningful to me. And that if I, if I had two or three white dog cafes, that I would lose that. I wouldn't be able to maintain those relationships. I'd be you know, getting in my car and driving from one restaurant to the other all day, you know, and, um, and, and these restaurants wouldn't all be in the place where I lived. You know, I, I, I lived above my restaurant, um, and, uh, living above the shop, kind of the old-fashioned way. So I think that living and working in the same community, uh, to me, was very important because I didn't have two sets um, of neighbors and two sets of community issues and so on. Um, you know, I lived and worked in the same place. 
And I don't think you necessarily have to live above the shop, as I did, although that was very convenient since I had young children at the time. Um, but just living in the same walkable community so that you can walk to work, I think, is a really important thing. And, and that's, um, that, of course, that used to um, be common in the old days, that you would walk to work and walk to leisure activities and walk to visit your friends. And then with uh, cars and highways and cheap gasoline, um, people started commuting. And that, at least in American culture, really destroyed community. That it destroyed, or the rural communities destroyed the urban communities, and everything kind of changed. And they've shown, um, they've done studies to show that happiness in the United States uh, was at its peak in the 50s. And once people started to move to the suburbs and um, the small towns kind of uh, lost their, their center um, because we had all these malls, and they would sprawl, it became suburban sprawl. And that's when, ha uh, and then in the cities, um, uh, they started building high rises and like sort of tearing down neighborhoods of the old-fashioned stores and homes and, and building high-rise apartment buildings and high-rise office buildings and so on. And um, and, and that's when happiness uh, began to, to to go downhill. And so people are less happy today than we than they were in the 50s. And Americans are less happy than our European comp uh, in counterparts because I think it happened less in Europe. Uh, there's more of a um, you know, more of a sense of community in Europe than there is in the United States. Um, so, um, I can't remember if I answered the question. I guess I did. Okay. So, um, thank you very much. Sure, you're very welcome. It was lovely to meet you. <laughs> to meet you too.